When I was in eighth grade, we got a, a new classmate in my class at school. And he was, he was shy, and he was clumsy, and a bit awkward, and he had a knack, a knack for self-deprecating humor. Putting a kid like that in a class of eighth graders is kind of like getting a lamb and dropping it in the lair of a pack of wolves. And I like to think that I was a sensible and reasonable kid. In any case, I like to think that I had certain diplomatic skills, I thought. I would sit at the back of the classroom. At the back of the classroom where the kids that are more concerned with a good laugh than with learning would sit. But I would get the grades like the kids that sit in the front. The kids that are so concerned with learning that they kind of don't know how to get a good laugh. And I like to think that that meant that I got along with both groups and that I knew how to navigate the different social codes, I would tell myself. Looking backwards, I think it's more likely that both groups held grudges on me, <laughs> but I wasn't mature enough to be aware enough. So I just carried on. And what is more, I was a Christian, and everybody knew it. So surely I was sensitive to the kids who struggled, and I certainly I would stand up against jerks, right? But that new class, classmate in eighth grade, he had that sense of humor. When the bullies bullied, he joked about it, and he got laughs from everybody. So it's all good fun, I figured. And I joined in. We would tease him for his clumsiness, and we would purposely leave our backpacks sort of sticking out into the alleys between the desks, hoping that he would trip and would all have a good laugh. We would lock him into this big closet that we had in our German language classroom, even though he actually spoke German, and all the rest of us was still trying to figure out what on earth a genitive case is anyway. But he would come out laughing and making jokes. So I figured it was all good fun. But as time went by, I realized that he was hurting. And I was too self-absorbed in trying to fit in to realize that his self-deprecating humor was actually a form of self-defense. And by the time I figured out that I should say something, he changed schools. Thankfully, or maybe the right word is hopefully, it wasn't because of us, his father got transferred to another city with his work, so he had to, to move and say goodbye and all of that. But I couldn't shake off the feeling that we had made his time in our school absolutely miserable. He never said it. He kept his sense of humor to the end. But I think it wasn't good. And I couldn't shake off the feeling that I had missed the chance of actually getting to know him. And that we as a group, we as a class, had actually missed the chance of having him be a part of our class. 
So much for my diplomatic skills, right? So much for my sensibility and the sensibility of my Christian faith. It's hard, right? It's hard to live it out in real life, isn't it? The things, the ideas we value or that we believe we value. Our faith and the ways in which it asks to touch our lives and asks to move in our bodies. It's difficult to live it out, isn't it? Sometimes even things that have been born from meaningful and sometimes powerful experiences, experiences that we believe are and call life-changing, even those can seem hard to grasp when reality sort of gets slippery. Or maybe, maybe we're the ones who get slippery and allow ourselves to escape the grasps of these experiences in our hearts. The Apostle Peter was once praying on a rooftop. And he was praying as he waited for a meal that was taking long in coming. Hungry and allowing himself to sort of consciously wander into that intersection of God and our experienced reality, this exercise that we might call prayer or that sometime prayer is. And what happened next, it touched both, prayer and hunger. Prayer and hunger. Peter saw what looked like a sheet being lowered from the skies or, I don't know, it's like a vision, right? A sheet being lowered from the skies, from its four corners, and in it all sorts of animals, impure animals. Peter was a Jew. And as a Jew, he was part of a tradition of faith for which food purity laws were deeply important. What you eat, how you eat it, how you prepare it, who you eat it with. An animal, as other foods, could be pure or they could be impure. And not eating impure animals was about more than just adhering to a rule book, right? It was about a lived expression of the Jewish faith. It was a way in which their faith spilled out into the reality of their everyday lives and was marked in their daily rhythm. And there was Peter, the sheet full of impure animals before him, and a voice calling from heaven saying, Kill Peter and eat. Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, says Peter, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the answer from that divine voice, it is life-changing. Don't call impure what God has made clean. Don't call impure what God has made clean. Don't Call impure what God has made clean. Three times. Three times this happens. Peter, kill and eat. No, don't call impure what God has made clean. And as Peter wonders what to do with this vision, the Spirit makes sure that he connects the dots, lest he finds excuses for getting out of what is coming his way. 
And the Spirit speaks to him, three men are coming looking for you, Peter. Do not hesitate to go with them. And Peter goes down from the rooftop, and he meets these three men who are looking for him, three Gentile persons, non-Jews, non-kosher, people who ate impure, richly unclean food, and who were themselves impure, richly unclean by Jewish standards of faith and practice. That's what kosher is if you ever heard a word, right? It's food that follows the rules of Jewish food purity. And Peter does something. He welcomes them. He welcomes them as his guests, these three non-Jewish men. And I wonder why there were exactly three guests. You know, numbers in the Bible is a big thing. It's part of how they tell the story. And I wonder, why exactly three guests? And I contemplate echoes here of Abraham welcoming three guests, right? Three expressions of God's presence and favor into his tent so many years ago. But I'm not actually going to dwell on that story today. Peter welcomes these three guests as his guests. And one does not welcome another as their guest. Least of all in first century Near Eastern cultures, you do not welcome another as your guest without welcoming them to meal fellowship, to eating together, to the meal that was about to be served because Peter was waiting for food. Now, the sharing of a meal between Jews and non-Jews was not actually unheard of. Jews lived among non-Jews, and many non-Jews lived among the Jews, and they did business together. Some developed friendships. They very likely had meals. But it could be tricky business. There was a lot to navigate around, right? As following food purity laws was an essential expression of the Jewish faith. And here on the spot, they're welcomed. And we can think, well, at least here, the host was kosher, right? The host was, was adhering to the food purity laws, so most likely the meal was. The food itself was pure, right? The way it had been prepared and the way it was served, they were the guests. They were the hosts, and the non-Jews were the guests. But after welcoming these strangers as his guests, Peter goes with them. And he goes to where they come from. He goes to the house of a centurion, a non-Jew, and there he becomes the guest. And there he shares the good news of Jesus Christ. And there he witnesses the Spirit outpouring over all who were there. Before he even finishes talking. And there he stays for a few days. You're not a guest if you're not welcome to the table. Days of food made in an unkosher kitchen, eaten with non-Jews. Now, we don't know. Did, had they provided for the special needs of their Jew guest? Maybe. We don't know. But we do know that there was fellowship. 
And we do know that Peter had crossed a cultural line, a faith tradition line, and that he had crossed it for the sake of the fellowship in the Spirit. Do not call impure what God has made clean. It's hard. It's hard to live it out in real life, isn't it? The things and the ideas that we value or that we believe we value, our faith and the ways in which it asks to touch our lives and to move our very bodies, it's difficult. Sometimes even things that have been born for meaningful and sometimes powerful experiences that we believe are and we call life-changing They can seem hard to grasp when reality gets slippery or we get slippery to get out of the grasp of the Spirit in our hearts. Last week, we talked about Paul. And we talked about his own process, Paul's own process of transformation and how it sort of shows through in Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. And in that same letter, Paul also speaks of Peter of Cephas, he calls Peter, using his Aramaic name, right, the Aramaic form of his name. And it is a story of Cephas, of Peter, and Gentiles, and meals of fellowship. But it's a different story, a different story from the story that we just read or just heard, and I want to share it with you and read it with you. And it is in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, from verse 11. And this is what Paul tells us. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, for that is how the Jews referred to the Gentiles, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinner, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing.
The other story was the story of Peter listening to the Spirit. This is the story of Peter listening to fear. Fear, fueled by religious zeal, can be a dangerous thing. Fear fueled by religious zeal can be a dangerous thing. And it does great damage. And more often than not, the first casualty is the possibility of fellowship at the table. Is the possibility of fellowship at a table that can allow for diversity and for difference. And that is what Paul is calling Peter out on. You see, Paul is not trying to correct Peter's understanding of the gospel. Paul is not arguing different views of the doctrine of justification with Peter. They already agreed on that. Paul is acting, is calling out how Peter's actions are corroding what Peter himself believes and has in fact experienced before. And Paul is letting Peter know that he is offering the fellowship that is created by the very death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the altar of religious fear. Peter knew this. He had just been sharing meals with these people. He had been at the house of Cornelius. He had seen the Spirit pour. And yet he listens to religious fear and steps away. And what he sacrifices with that is the fellowship that he knew the very Spirit of Christ had created. The issue with Peter here was not if the law was necessary for justification or not. Peter and Paul both agreed that it did not. That's the whole thing with Paul's argument afterwards, right? And that is what is tragic about this, is that though Peter did not think that the law was necessary for justification, he was still allowing the law to break the fellowship of Christ. And that, not law, not Torah observance, not Jewish law observance is what was an act of what I have been calling ungospeling, of robbing the news of Christ of its goodness and of its grace. As we have already said before and noted elsewhere, Paul's issue is not with Jews keeping the Torah, as they would refer to the, to the whole corpus of the Jewish scriptures and laws, right? It is not even, Paul's problem is not even with Torah keeping as a legitimate expression of faith, also for Jewish Christians. His issue is Torah keeping as a requirement for faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore for the community of Christ. And his issue is with Torah keeping as a divider of that community of faith and of that belonging to Christ. 
And Paul tells this story in his letter to the Galatians because he believes that this story bears witness to the change that the gospel asks of those who will follow Christ and those who will bear his name, whether they are Peter the apostle or the churches in the province of Galatia, whether they are a Jew or a Gentile or a Roman or a Greek or a man or a woman or a master or a slave. He believes that it bears witness also to the freedom that they are called into and how that freedom shapes community through grace. And we read this story again today, and we tell it aloud because we believe it bears witness also to us. So I would like to end with two worthwhile reflections for us as a Christian community of faith today. Perhaps it might be worth asking if we have developed traditions of faith, Christian traditions of faith, as we call them, that we resort to as markers to exclude those who have been accepted solely by the grace of Christ. And we see this happen in history, right? We see this in religious wars of discord. We see this in ethnical divides that are founded on some sort of religious background. We see this in the Crusades. We see this. But we might ask, is there some of this at home? And if those traditions are doing that, then in doing that, if not necessarily in the traditions themselves, right, in the expressions of faith themselves, but in doing that, they might be an act of ungospeling, of robbing the news of Christ of its goodness and of its grace. That's a hard question, right? Because it's difficult, isn't it? To live these things out in the messiness of real life. among the smell and sweat of real people. And perhaps it might also be worth asking what we might be missing out on. If we hearken back to Peter's experience at the house of Cornelius, it is worth asking what we miss out on when we listen to fear rather than the Spirit when we listen to exclusion rather than hospitality and generosity. The list of strangers who end up being profound expressions of God in the world is long in the biblical narrative. But pay attention to that. Abraham's three guests, the Ethiopian speaking to Philip, Cornelius, Ruth, the Moabite, Rab, the prostitute, to name just a few. And then there's the other stranger, right? The one who came to his own, but they did not recognize him. That is how John, in his gospel, announces the birth of Christ. 
the light came into the darkness, and the darkness did not recognize it. The one who shared meals with the prostitutes and the tax collectors, as well as with the fear-mongering teachers of the law. What might we be missing out on? And when we place ourselves within that faith and within the hope of that faith that draws prophetic images of a future with no distances and with a multitude of all peoples gathered around the common meal of the Lamb of God, then what poverty of spirit and love do we curse ourselves with when we refuse to believe such things with our own bodies and meals today? But what richness we might find what richness we might find, what presence of the incarnate Son when we allow grace to blow away fear with the wind of the Spirit. What joy in sharing bread, even if it is with the trembling arms of our own insecurities. That is a bit of what we're doing, isn't it? in a community like this one. When we come from very different traditions of faith, very different traditions of what it means to be Christian and very different cultural backgrounds, very different ways of being human. (laughs) Different ways in which our skin shows We have some of that. Can we yearn for more? Can we hope for more? Can we dare for more? Can we fight with ourselves when we want to slide back into our comfort zones? Because it's hard work, isn't it? To share that kind of meal. But isn't that what we do? when we share the bread, even with the trembling arms of our own insecurities, but accept it as a meal of grace and belonging because of Jesus Christ. It's difficult, isn't it? But that's the image of hope in our faith, and that we pray with humbled knees might take place in our bodies and in our communities of faith. Also here. And I hope we'll never just sit down and get comfortable. But we'll keep on asking. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you. Into your days of darkness and despair and your days of joy and hope that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and serve each other. Serve the Lord. Serve the world joyfully. Amen.